0: long
1: the government the government the government the government. Welcome to the Politics, Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baronowski, professor of Political Science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen.
0: Hey, Mike, it's so good to be back. It's yeah. so nice to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I, I hope, you know, I've been saying this for weeks. And I hope people don't think, well, doesn't Mike like Jay? I love Jay, but it's just, it's been it's so nice to actually be back talking with you. I miss you.
0: I miss you too. And I missed, I missed everybody. I missed the show and I missed, I missed my Saturday mornings and, but it's, it's so nice to be back. I'm glad my project I was working on is over. I yeah. was, I was a little too busy. So this is kind of like the, a new beginning again.
1: <laughs> I am. I am definitely looking forward to it. But Thanks. before we get started, I want to just thank our newest supporters on Patreon, Jennifer, Peter, Jacob, Susan, and also Daniel and Eric, both of whom are longtime listeners who recently doubled their support for the show. So thank you all very much. We really appreciate that. Also on Venmo, we had a very generous donation from Brett. Thank you, Brett. And of course, as a Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length episode every week. You also get ad-free versions of all of our shows, as well as other stuff at different levels. Check it out at patreon.com slash politicsguys. And as always, if you'd like that bonus show, but you can't afford to support the show financially right now, totally not a problem. Just send me an email, Mike politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up. And as I mentioned, you can also support the show through Venmo. We're at politicsguys on Venmo. So on today's show, Kristen and I are going to be talking about efforts to save or to kill, actually, the uh, 1-6 Commission now, Uh, evidence that COVID may have been the result of a lab leak in China, the Senate's bipartisan China bill, and uh, depending on if we have enough time, the Republican counteroffer on infrastructure and President Biden's first budget proposal. But before we get to that, we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Okay, Kristen, so do you want to lead us off for today?
0: Yeah, so our first topic is going to be the January 6th commission. And uh, I guess it's an issue no more, but we'll talk about everything that happened this week since you guys have talked about it in weeks past. Um, So just to kind of like, you know, remind everybody and pick up on previous conversations, um, there was this proposal to create a January 6th commission, which it was like kind of colloquially known, uh, which would investigate the events at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, And this was originally proposed by Speaker Nancy Pelosi. and it was passed in the House on May 19th. So that was kind of the, the information that uh, you guys had last weekend. Um, but it was then blocked by Senate Republicans this week on May 28th um, with a vote of 54 to 35, which was short of the 60 needed uh, to filibuster. And ultimately, there were six Republicans just to kind of break it down. There were six Republicans who voted for the bill, including not surprisingly to most Republicans, Senator Romney, Senator Collins. Those were kind of the two biggies. Uh, that I think a lot of people anticipated would vote for this bill, um, and there were actually nine Republicans and two Democrats who did not vote on the bill at all. Um, and those included Democrats uh, Senator Cinema and Senator Murray of Washington. And along the way, there were lots of issues that were brought up, which I'm sure we'll you know we'll talk about all of these issues that were brought up this week. Um, there were a few uh, pretty. Uh, meaningful issues brought up by Senator Collins. Uh, She ultimately voted for the bill, but the issues were timing and committee staffing. Again, we'll discuss those. And then there was Senator Murkowski, uh, the Republican from Alaska, who also voiced concerns, but she did so more towards her own party, saying she believed that minority leader uh, Mitch McConnell was blocking legislation for short-term political gain, which I'm sure we'll discuss. So yeah, that kind of brings us up to speed. Um, You know, after this week, this you know, kind of this commission, uh, is no more, but I'm sure this is not the last we'll hear about it. So what are your thoughts, Mike?
1: Well, I guess my main thought here is that the Republican leadership in both chambers is taking a, taking a risk is they're gambling. And and what I mean is, I think the gamble is they, they assume, they hope that Donald Trump's, uh, Uh, Donald Trump's sway over the the Republican Party is going to naturally diminish that he's not going to be the sort of power broker that he – some people believe he is, including me right now, moving forward. And so therefore that they can go ahead and not have this commission, maybe take a hit now. And, uh, you know, the result will be, they, they believe, is making it less of an issue going into the midterms. They'll take control of both chambers. And by 2024, the Trump fever will have passed, if you will, and it will be back to business as usual except in 2024 with a Republican president and a Republican House and Senate. At least that, that's to me, I think, mm-hmm. how they're seeing it. What, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, so, you know, I've brought up this analogy before. It's such a silly analogy, but I think it works in this case is Dr. Seuss's Butter Battle book, which I know <laughs> I've brought up before. But it, at the end of the book, if you're if you're rusty on your Dr. Seuss, it's uh, it's an allegory of, you know, what was happening with the Berlin Wall. Um, basically, you have like two people, you know, one on either side kind of holding the bomb out, you know, for the other side to kind of obliterate the other side. And the book kind of ends on this dot, 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 where it's like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, here we are, we both have a bomb, you know, kind of, and and I feel like we've been in this precarious position for a long time. I don't know why that analogy always pops up into my head, but when it comes to Republicans and Democrats um, in Congress, in the Senate, um, just in general, in life, um, I think we're at kind of a crossroads. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm of the belief that almost everything that any politically motivated person, any, anybody who's running for reelection, et cetera, et cetera. I'm kind of of the belief that almost everything I do is motivated by the next election cycle. And, you know, we have a lot of uh, vulnerable Democrats and vulnerable Republicans that will be up for reelection, um, you know, next year in four years, three, I guess, three years, um, you know, in six years, whatever, whatever, whatever the case may be. And so, You know, I think that they have their sights set on that. And I do think that, um, you know, Democrats accusing Republicans of doing this all for short-term political gain, I think there's a lot of accuracy there, but I also think that there's accuracy the other way, saying, you know, Republicans uh, accusing Democrats of wanting to kind of stage this this uh, effort to like pin things on Republicans for the sake of, you know, vulnerable candidates that are going to be up for reelection in a couple of years, trying to get some sound bites, make them look tough. Um, I, I guess, I don't know, I guess over the last five months, I've just become increasingly cynical, which I didn't want to, ha- you know, I didn't want to see that happen because I've been less cynical. Um, but you know, I, I've just become increasingly cynical of both Republicans and Democrats. And I tend to think that a lot of this is just political theater.
1: <laughs> but you know, I I'd be interested in hearing what you think about what you thought about Bill Cassidy, Senator Cassidy's rationale for voting to go forward with this, because unlike some of the others, he actually put forward a clearly political rationale. He said that he voted for the commission because he thought a bipartisan body with a clear end date that was put in legislation yeah. would be better than what's almost certain to come is that uh, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats are going to have their own select committee, but it will be run by Democrats. And it's almost certainly going to drag on for, or go on, depending on how you want to look at it, go on for far longer than the proposed legislation, which would have had an end date by December 31st, and also under the Collins amendment that was being mm-hmm. looked at, that the committee would have had a un, unbanned, D-banned, uh but <laughs> 30 <laughs> days after that. So cassidy's uh, Cassidy's argument was like, well, that's that's going to be a lot better for us. But now the Democrats are going to be able to have this sort of hang on. I, I'm wondering what you what you thought about that political argument from Cassidy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I So I have I have a lot of mixed opinions when it comes to this, because, um, you know, we when I was prepping for the show, I, I, I knew I was paying close attention to Senator Collins, not because I didn't think she'd vote the way she did. I fully anticipated that she would vote the way she did. I also anticipated um, Senator Cassidy's vote, but he expressed those sa- same two concerns that she did, which were the timing and the committee staffing. And it was funny cause I was I was talking about it with my husband this morning. Um, and you know, we actually, we differed on this issue, but I said, you know, those two issues, although for example, uh, you know, these these two senators voted for this bill, um, those two issues were my big sticking points as well. And they would have been the rationale that, you know, if, if I had been an, a senator, you know, a senator from the state of Florida or whatever, would have also given me pause. Um, and I think what Senator Cassidy's point is, I, I think it makes a lot of sense because these are two really big sticking points. The timing issue in particular bothers me because I think the big concern of a lot of Republicans, and I include myself in that group, the big concern was that this was all political theater, that this was designed um, to drag on into the 2022 uh election cycle and that this would continue to drag on and that it would impact elections and that this was an aim of democrats who were who were really pushing this legislation and i think to senator kennedy or uh cassidy's point senator kennedy senator yeah. <laughs> cassidy's point um i i think it makes a lot of sense to to pay attention to that would it have been enough for me to to vote for it uh for his rush for his reasons no but i think that um you know, I think that the points that both of them brought up were were definitely worth noting.
1: Yeah. You know, because my position on this is that, you know, Senator McConnell and other Republicans are right that there are other there are currently other congressional investigations going on. There's no mm-hmm. question. But that is they they are also more partisan investigations just by the very nature of the fact that right. both chambers are controlled, if narrowly, by the Democrats. Now, if 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 I'm being very cynical, what I would say is that, well, that's actually what Senator McConnell and other congressional Republicans want, because any non-bipartisan panel, no matter what they say, their findings can be rejected as being Democrats out to get Republicans. But If you have a panel where half of the members are chosen by Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell and staffing is evenly chosen and no one can subpoena witnesses without some support from the other side, then all of a sudden a a report from that committee just can't be dismissed if they can reach some kind of a majority report. And so it seems to me that the smart political move from Mitch McConnell, who almost always seems to make the smart political move, is to say, well, let's make sure there is no bipartisan panel because that's going to be a lot harder to reject those findings. And I think, you know, people are betting what the findings will be is that there was some culpability by Donald Trump, if if by nobody else. And given the fact that Donald Trump has a multi-million dollar super PAC and Donald Trump still has an awful lot of sway. That's not the sort of, that's not the sort of place you want to be. That that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I look at it.
0: You know, it's funny. I, um I guess again, my, my cynicism is getting in the way and I'm trying to be as impartial as I possibly can be. But um, when it comes to this issue, um, I have to wonder if any of that will matter. Um, because I think what we've become and, and this is this is like a really broad view, but I think what we've become, especially when it comes to you know what what we're what we're taking in from the media, I think what we've become is a is a culture that uh kind of hangs on sound bites, and I think the fear of a lot of republicans and it's a it's a fear of mine and to some extent, I think it's the fear of a lot of Democrats going the opposite way, is that there will be you know, potentially very competitive candidates, uh, you know, senators, for example, who are running for re-election, who are going to get those soundbites in. I I think of like um, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, um, and I, I I think of you know some of the things that have happened over the last couple of years. Um, you know, Cory Booker's famous Spartacus moment, for example. These these moments that tend to resonate in the media and that we tend to hang on and. You know, as much as I wish that the that the outcome mattered and I agree with you, I I totally agree with you that if the if the committee was bipartisan, then it would be very difficult to reject the findings of that committee if it was if it was truly bipartisan and if we were paying attention to that. But the fact is that. Americans by and large don't pay attention to that um, they pay attention to those sound bites and those like those shining moments um, and and you know I'm not saying that Democrats are responsible for all of those moments you certainly have grant standing on the right too um, you know Lindsey Graham is a really good example of somebody who you know takes advantage of those moments again he's a career politician and and you know he know he knows how to play this game and so I think the fear of a lot of Republicans is that that is what this will turn into is this kind of this opportunity for for uh, senators to grandstand and to get in those sound bites, and that's ultimately the the political goal. So as much as I I agree with you, um, and I agree with Senator Kennedy, or I keep saying Kennedy Cassidy, um, I got Senator Kennedy on the brain, yeah. I guess uh, Cassidy about um, you know a bipartisan truly bipartisan committee. I think we we have to ask ourselves, you know, whether or not this is going to turn turn into like a soundbite circus. Well, well, let let me ask you this then.
1: I I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I I find, I mean, both sides, everything is political to a certain extent, but I guess that leaves me with a quandary because if that's the case, then Mm -hmm. the only, it seems like the only way to not make it political is to not investigate it all together, and that would apply to any issue. So I guess what I'm saying is that if all of these issues are going to be innate, guaranteed they're going to be used by both parties to, to, to seek electoral advantage, however they can, and, and given the fact that Congress needs to investigate stuff and hold hearings and do things, then it would seem to me that the best worst option, if you would, is that they tried We do these in as bipartisan a way as mm-hmm. possible, as opposed to just letting Speaker Pelosi set up whatever, you know, a, Kangaroo court, if you will, that she wants. Uh, again, this is if you are interested in in some sort of in parties coming together on certain issues, like they did after nine eleven. Now, granted, that was a very different threat. You know, it's not like it's not like the the hijackers had Trump flags in the planes or anything like that. So, I get it's a different thing, but you know, it, it is it is frustrating to me because, and again, this is certainly is speaking in in my short term interest, but I mm-hmm. actually feel that it's in the long-term interest of the Republican Party if, if you know, to re- to repudiate Trump and Trumpism as soon as possible and to get back to the sort of conservative principles of the John Boehner's and the Paul Ryan's and that sort of thing. Because I think that this, I think that this white male resentment politics of populist resentment is a dead end for the party. And I don't think it's good for the country either.
0: Yeah. I, uh, it's funny because I, what you say what you're saying right now it was is reminiscent of what like Senator Murkowski was arguing. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. Um, where she was saying this is all about short-term gain, but we have to think about the long game. And I think there, although I disagree with Senator Murkowski on just about everything, I don't disagree with her on that because I, I'm i thinking about, um, you know, there are a lot of things happening that, that Republicans want to bring up um, as possible sources, uh, you know, sources of investigation. For example, uh, what's going on with Antifa? There needs to be some sort of investigation of you know what's going on with Antif. There's been a lot of talk about that, bringing that up, you know, bringing that to the forefront, having a congressional investigation. Um, this is not going to play well. It's, it's kind of the, the Republican habit. It frustrates me about my own party, the, the Republican habit of not thinking about the long game. The fact that there are things, like you said, that we want to accomplish in Congress, and we can't possibly accomplish those things without being completely hypocritical if that makes sense. Yeah, no. And I think, and I think, um, you know, while I think that, you know, what was being proposed by Nancy Pelosi, was, in my opinion, is was out of the question. Um, I do think that there's opportunity here to have a conversation about an investigation that is truly bipartisan, and that is truly capped at a certain time so that it doesn't interfere, interfere with elections. I think it's impossible to avoid the political soundbiting. I think it's completely Impossible, I think it will happen. These are, you know, these are, in, these are independent, you know, these are politicians and they work for us in theory, but, um, you know, these are independent people with independent thoughts and, you know, they have, goal. you know, objectives of their own. And for in most cases, their objective, their main objective is to get reelected. And so they're going to use this as an opportunity, right, left, you know, wh- wherever they fall. Um, but I think, you know, maybe moving forward, I have so many mixed opinions about it, because I think what these, although I tend to disagree with these senators, again, on almost everything, I tend to, in this case, say these are the, you know, they're bringing up the, I'm not so quick to dismiss these senators and their concerns, especially Senator Cassidy, because I think what he's saying actually makes sense. And I think it's maybe a jumping off point for, you know, the Republican Party, something to think about um, moving forward, because I don't think we were thinking about the long game here. There are things that I want to see investigated by Congress. And if we were tied to the mentality of, well, we're just not going to investigate anything, then these these other things are never going to get accomplished.
1: You know, I, I guess what really makes me sad, more generally about this, but also just the more uh, overall tone, is that I, I feel that this sort of extremism, this this lying, oftentimes by members of Congress, has has basically been normalized in the last. Yeah. You know, and you have you have Greg Pence, right? Mike Pence's brother saying mm-hmm. hanging Judge Nancy Pelosi is hellbent on pushing her version of partisan justice complete with a handpicked jury that will carry out her predetermined political execution of Donald Trump before law enforcement has completed their investigation. Now, there are at least two lies right in that statement about that commission, but also the very fact that Greg Pence was with his brother, the vice president, when people were going through the Capitol saying literally hang Mike Pence with, you know, the, it just... <sighs> It's just, wow, this is not the political world I grew up in. And I picked that example there, you know, conservatives could certainly, you know, use some examples Mm -hmm. from from squad folks and so forth. But the fact that that is the sort of thing that that cranks up the fundraising totals and just just it just it makes me almost physically ill when I think about it
0: yeah i you know when i sat and i really thought about um some of the things that i would hope this is you know before late this week when when the commission was completely shut down but i was thinking about you know what would i what is the thing that i hope for most and i, I again like i go back to what senator collins said about the timing which i think is critical and then also the committee staffing the committee staffing is so important having a truly bipartisan and not you know i you know a a kangaroo court as as you put it, but quote unquote, you know, however you want to put it by Nancy Pelosi. I think it's important, um, you know, that she doesn't control the narrative on this, although she would try to control the narrative. I think it's important that if we did do something like this, if we did have an investigation, that it was truly bipartisan, there were comparisons of this, you know, commission to, uh, to like the Warren commission, which I thought was crazy um, because I I think the circumstances are very different. Um, There was a lot of comparison comparison there in the media. And I kind of just rolled my eyes at that. Again, cynically, I'm trying, I'm trying to get away from the cynicism, Mike, I really, <laughs> it, well, it's, but,
1: no, it, it's hard because
0: it's it, so hard.
1: It, you know, it, it, like, that's my frustration is because I know I, I get the incentive structure here. It makes sense, especially in the house for these people to do this, because look at Marjorie Taylor Greene's fundraising totals. Look at mm-hmm. Josh Hawley's. I mean, this works. And as long as this works, as long as people respond, well, of course, they're going to do that. It would be foolish for us to expect these hyper ambitious people to do anything other than that. And that's just I said, that's just what that's what really makes me sad, because there's no easy fix to that, because that's built into the nature of the political system that we have right now.
0: Right. And, and a bipartisan, a truly bipartisan commission, And I say truly in all capital letters, because Um, You know, I think there are some genuine concerns that that any concerned, truly concerned Republican or concerned Democrat would want answers to that don't necessarily fit a Democratic part, at least the way the party is now a Democratic narrative. For example, um, there is a lot of, you know, talk about the fact that Capitol Police let People into the Capitol. I don't know if it's, you know, it, it, it could be true, it could not be true. I've seen videos, I've seen several videos that may allude to this, but I think that warrants investigation. And one of the things that frustrates me is if it's a Nancy Pelosi controlled narrative, those things may never come to light. And I don't think Republicans were thinking about that. That is really important. I would. I would hope that any concerned Democrat would say, gee, I'd like to know the answer to that, because ultimately what any concerned American would want to come to is the truth. You know, like what really happened? There probably are a lot of questions that will never be answered because they won't be properly investigated. And so things like that are are sticking points with me on this, because as much as I want to say, yeah, it would be a kangaroo court. I'm thinking about issues like that. Some things will never come to light. Yeah. And, and so I guess like, that's my big takeaway from this is, is like, I I have very mixed feelings about it and I feel uneasy about, you know, the future investigations as well. So that's, I guess these are the things that I'm most concerned about. Absolutely. You know, before we moved
1: on, I also, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Joe Manchin because earlier in the week, Manchin and Cinema issued this short, a short statement to leadership of both of both parties saying, we implore our Senate Republican colleagues to work with us to find a path forward on the commission. And Manchin also had mentioned that with the Collins Amendment, Democrats had given Republicans everything they had previously asked for. Yet when Manchin was asked if a filibuster on this would make him reconsider his opposition to changing or eliminating the filibuster. He actually laughed and said, no, I can't take the fallout. So, you know, I I don't I don't know how to read Joe Manchin, honestly. I I mean, again, the cynical side of me says, well, this is just kind of a and maybe some Republicans think that is this is just kind of a setup. And as long as there are a, a kind of unified Republican opposition to everything, especially when Democrats seem to accede to all Republican demands, then at some point, maybe toward the end of this year, Manchin's going to say, you know what, I said that, but I'm sorry at this point, it's clear to me that the system is totally broken. Because it seems to me what Manchin is saying is that the system is totally broken. Come on, Republicans, let's be bipartisan. And I don't know if he's actually going to be able to say, well, OK, we tried. We gave it a good faith effort. The GOP wouldn't go with us. You know, Mitch McConnell said my main goal is to stop everything that the Biden administration wants to do. So, OK, we're going to change. I'm going to be on board for changing the filibuster. I, I don't know. It's, I mean, uh, uh, that would be a cynical kind of move on Manchin's part. Maybe it would give him a little more cover. How, how do you read this?
0: I don't know. While you were talking, I was just thinking we could have a whole show on like Joe Manchin (laughs) and, and just his, his journey through politics and and how he plays the game. And I mean, ultimately he's, I feel like he's always somebody that Republicans and Democrats try to pick off every time he's up for reelection as being vulnerable. And I, I, you know, I do think it's it's a rather cynical approach. I agree with you. I think it's a rather cynical approach on his part, but I just, I don't know. Um, he seems to be somebody who plays the short game, and in a weird way, it's worked for him. I'm not really sure how. I mean, Kristen Sinema, you know, her, her, she didn't vote on this bill, and that doesn't surprise me. Um, but you know, I feel like every couple of years, uh, you know, whenever he's up for re-election, or or whenever you know they start the media starts declaring which uh, senators are vulnerable, I feel like Joe Manchin's name comes up because he's in West Virginia, which is you know a pretty red state. And he's kind of hanging on by the skin of his teeth. And he always seems to play a short game and he always seems to win. So I have to wonder what his motivations are, too. I'm not really sure. Um, but it didn't surprise me because this this is a very Manchin-y response of yeah, late. I
1: mean, I guess I'm trying to understand what, you know, what his uh, what what his political thinking is here, because he said he can't yeah. take the fallout. OK, I get that, because West Virginia is one of the most Republican yep. states in the country. And yet he, Manchin manages to kind of hang on, not hang on. Every you know, time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and I think his re-election, last re-election was 2018 and i think he got just i believe just under 50% of the vote 2012 it was a little over 60% so i guess you know if he wants to win one more term he kind of has to this. but then i'm not thinking he's 73 years old i mean what does he want his what does he want his legacy to be do people even think about legacies i mean if he's running again he's going to be 75 i don't know i just don't I can't pretend to understand that, but I don't I I clearly do not yet at least think like a senator. We'll see once I, you know, once I miraculously win the Ohio seat to replace Rob Portman, (laughs) who I got to say, Rob Portman, I think, you know, he's retiring. That made it easier. But. Portman's been one of the more moderate Republicans in the Senate, and I, you know, I, I'm pleased that he joined with Sass and Romney and others to kind of at least at least show that there are elements in the Republican Party who think that the smart move, I think, is to try to put the Trump stuff behind them as soon as possible. But then you have the you know the the Hollies and the Cruises who seem to have, I think, holding more sway over the party right now. Mm-hmm. So, so my prediction early this year. Was that the filibuster would in some way be modified by the end of 2021? And you know, I, it's been at the beginning of the year that looked like a, especially after January 6th, that, that looked like a. I, I felt pretty good about that. Um, Manchin was saying some stuff. I, I feel a lot less certain of that. But I'm going to stick to my guns, I, just because I don't want to go go off of my initial prediction. But but what do you think? Is is all of this going to lead? To mansion and cinema, saying, you know what, we're not going to eliminate. It. I don't think. I think that would be a bridge too far. But them saying, well, we're going to change how it works, so there's still technically a filibuster,
0: but not really. What do you think? I, this has been talked about before, and I feel like nothing has ever really come of it. Um, I mean, I, I think. I think I also towards the beginning of the year, and in my case, there was a fear that the filibuster would change. Um, I think I've, I've also become more cynical. About, I guess that's the word of the day, cynical about it. Um, I, I'm not sure that that'll happen. I think, you know, obviously things move really fast in politics. And I think if, if the last five months have shown us anything, you know, I can't even remember what was in the news a month ago, which, you know, over the last few years, that's become more and more apparent. But now I feel like things move so fast. They're in and out of the news cycle. And this was something that was talked about a lot, like in late January, early February, after January 20th, this was talked about a lot. And, uh, you know, as time goes on, I feel like, you know, the bigger, bigger, more attractive things have, you know, have kind of taken up the, the news cycle. I wouldn't be surprised if this is brought up again, in which case I might reassess my my opinion about, you know, my prediction about what would happen. I don't think my opinion would change, but my prediction about what would happen right now, I I would say it's unlikely before the end of the year that anything would happen. But, you know, as we know, things change really quickly. So we might be on the show in a few weeks talking about it differently.
1: So yeah, and, and, you know, it could be a case to be careful what you what you wish for, because it's not beyond the realm of possibility to envision a scenario in January of 2025 when President DeSantis has just taken the oath with a Republican <laughs> Senate and house. And I got to say, I would be pretty happy for a filibuster at that point. So uh,
0: again, the lot that long game, it'll really bite you. you know? Know? Yeah, absolutely. Think about that long game.
1: Hey, so before we get to our next story, Christian, we just need to take a quick break and then we will be right back. Everyone deserves nice things, but with all the markups in traditional luxury retail, high quality goods can be awfully expensive. Quince is different. They're a one-stop shop for essential products with low design costs. They've got tees, hoodies, loungewear, pants and shorts, blouses, dresses, skirts. I mean, unless you're a nudist, they've got something for you. And You know, even if you are clothing optional, they've got home accessories, bedding, bath, decor, all sorts of good stuff. Quince finds the best factories and only partners with those committed to the highest production standards, fair wages, safety, and sustainability, which is particularly a big deal to me. And because Quince is shipping directly to you with no agents, stores, or other middlemen, you get great 100% factory direct prices on everything. I mean, I've been desperately in need of some new t-shirts and I was really impressed by the price and quality of their organic Pima cotton selection. And my bath towels, honestly, are looking pretty ratty too. So Quince's great prices on high quality Turkish bath towels, they really caught my eye. Quality shouldn't be a luxury. You deserve it. So try Quince today. Get free shipping and 365 day free returns by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. Many of their collections sell out immediately. So don't wait. You can save hundreds of dollars on clothing and accessories by going to onequince.com slash politicsguys. That's onequinc com slash politicsguys. Okay, Krista. so maybe we can move on to something a little bit different here, uh, that the whole COVID lab leak uh, story, I guess
0: yeah this is wild so um so this is I mean you pretty much have been living under a rock if you don't know what's going on but uh but this is you know something that's transpired really in the last couple of months in the last few weeks, a lot has changed. Um, you know, I wrote it up at the top of my notes. Oh, what a difference time makes on a politicized argument like this one. I mean, things have really shifted with this. Um, in recent months, the idea that was once dismissed as a conspiracy theory, which was that uh, COVID-19 emerged from the Wuhan Institute of Viro- Virology, has gained credibility. Um, And even in the media, the media has given it some credibility recently in the last few weeks. Um, And it's really forced a lot of people, you know, Republicans, Democrats, just people in general to ask a lot of questions. And I wrote, I jotted down some of the the questions that you brought up, Mike, but just some questions I noticed that were, you know, being asked by reporters, um, namely how culpable is the Chinese government here? Um, And then related to that, does this you know, this new idea that there might be some credible information that you know, the, the virus er, emerged from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, does it mirror an investigation, a World Health Organization investigation, uh, possibly one led by the United States? That's something that's been brought up a lot. Um, and then also, um, what was the role of the United States in the National Institutes of Health? And Dr. Fauci, um, did they know what was going on possibly? Or worse, were they aware of funding? Were we funding the gain of function research in Wuhan? That's a hot topic that's come up. Um, And then, you know, I'm sure to your dismay, Mike, was Trump right all along? That was a question I know that that you asked. And um, it's certainly being debated, although I don't know. I don't know that we know the answer right now. Um, And I think the most important question in all of this um, has nothing to do with with Trump or Biden. And that's you know moving forward what does this mean for us relations with china because i think you could make an argument that they are not good right now and this is not going to make anything better if if um you know if there's some credibility to this information so we have a lot of questions and a lot has come up certainly since we've spoken it was interesting mike um so the the factcheck.org the website factcheck.org i it, like throughout this entire process over the last year, um, you know, there was the question at the top of FactCheck.org saying, you know, did COVID nineteen originate in a in the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Or it was phrased a little differently. But for the longest time, it said false, false, false. And then a few weeks ago, they changed it, and it said I think it said partially false or partly false. And now it's now it's unknown. So mm-hmm. I, I I found that that kind of like March the other way interesting and 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 the media is starting to you know lend lend some credibility to these arguments so i'm dying to know what you think about it because this is something i've really i've really wrestled with and i've been following closely i'm sure you have too so i want to know what you think about all of this
1: well i i think it's certainly possible that donald trump was right all along but I guess I would say also that I don't think that Donald Trump knows. I don't think that anyone outside of top Chinese leadership and some people in the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology actually know. And my bet, I think it's a pretty safe bet, is that we're never going to know because I cannot see, I cannot envision a scenario, whether it's a WHO-led investigation, certainly not if it's a U.S.-led investigation, or China's going to say, "Oh yes, there's this information that we weren't sharing, but here it is, and it shows that we're actually mm-hmm. culpable." I, I, w- I, in what universe is that a scenario that's going to happen, right? I, and so Donald Trump may well have been right all along, but if he claims he knew it all along, he's 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 full of it because there's no way anyone could have known it seems to be a more reasonable supposition now given the the illnesses of those researchers with the covid you know covid consistent symptoms so but we're never going to know that said i think that doesn't mean we shouldn't push china on this because we we need to push them as much and as hard as we can to be transparent about medical research and so <sighs> Yeah, this is this is frustrating, I guess, in the sense yeah. that that this is what happens when you're when you deal when you're dealing with a highly technologically advanced but unfree society. Uh, but honestly, you know, I China is saying that well no, this could have this could have originated from Fort Detrick in Maryland, which is a total BS, I think everyone knows that. But I think that if any government had done this, they would probably react in a similar way. I mean all governments cover things up and if your government is responsible in any way for a worldwide pandemic that kills millions of people and costs what trillions of dollars in lost economic activity i'm pretty sure you keep your mouth shut uh it's just easier in china uh, that's that's that sounds horrifically cynical, but that's kind of my take on that
0: yeah i you know this is one of those things where you have to you almost have to consider, again, a really broad view, but you almost have to consider the nature of science. And that's just that it's ever changing. This idea of like trusting the science, I, I find just to be complete bunk, because I don't think you can trust something that's always changing. You you know, you're, you're going to end up trusting whatever, you know, whatever the findings are at that moment. And so one of the frustrating things that I don't even think this is like a Republican stance or a conservative stance or anything like that, just purely apolitically, is from the beginning there just seemed to be such a push especially from the media but you know but from, it, it, from the the world of medicine that this did not originate in the Wuhan Institute of Virology this did not originate the the way that you know these quote unquote conspiracy theory, theorists were alleging and the thing is i i think on both sides of this argument not necessarily politically but on both sides of this argument you had people who were saying yes it did and you had people who were saying no it didn't and i think most of us again like I, i'm not necessarily in the middle but i i kind of thought to myself well wait there's legit there are legitimate concerns that it that it did and there is evidence that it may have and all along there have been these questions and ultimately to your point and it's a great point we can't trust a society, a a nation, a government that's so shut down—it's it—you know—it's it's it's a socialist government. They're going to tighten the ranks more than any other type of government conceivably. Although any type of government would just want to save their their hide. You know, any any government entity—you know—if the blame was placed on them for something as like tragic as this, they would want to point the finger somewhere else. So yeah, of course, this is what what they're doing is is expected. They're pointing the finger elsewhere, um, but you're never going to get transparency from the chinese government and the, you're right we never will know but what what frustrates me is that there were so many people willing to dismiss this yeah. from the start and and willing to like go to war with people there were people uh, you know again we'll be we'll be talking about banning and, and de-platforming on social media during you know during the the next show but um you know i i There were so many people who were banned for so from social media for just raising these concerns, not necessarily saying it originated there, but just raising these concerns. And now this double backing on on this on this idea that perhaps it originated there. There are questions as to what exactly happened. Um, I just, I don't know, like I find it repulsive. And and what I hope is that if this, God forbid this, something like this ever happens again, I pray that it doesn't, but if it ever does, that, you know, we will take a more, dare I say, like scientific approach to this. And we'll say, you know, we, we need to listen to the evidence. If there are genuine concerns and evidence that something happened, we need to be not so quick to point the finger in one direction. We need to kind of All of this out, and and I. The truth is, I don't think. Well, I think we're too far gone at this point. I don't think we'll know. But I. It it frustrates me that so many people were quote unquote like taken down or canceled because of this. Because it seems to me that that there were credible concerns all along. Donald Trump aside, (laughs) just regular people who had genuine concerns about this in the medical community too.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. What we have this allergy to uncertainty. Right. And and oftentimes yes. uh, people don't appreciate that science is largely probabilistic. And so but people don't want to hear, well, there's a there's a reasonable chance or we think based on the evidence that it's probable that no, let's say this happened or this, especially when you're dealing with something very scary that literally can kill you. People don't want to hear what well, we don't know. Maybe do this and possibly it'll work more than anything else we know of. No, people want certainty. And and I think obviously our social media environment and the things we were talking about in the first story, those those incentives just – Drive people to wanting simple, clear answers. It reminds me of that. That uh, so much in politics reminds me of that poem, "The Second Coming." Right, the best yeah. lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And we see a lot of passionate intensity. I'm certain this is what happened. Or no, you're certainly wrong. You're a complete fool. And you know. And that's what When's the last time I, I, that you that anyone you know we can remember anyone uh, in national politics saying, you know what? I don't know, I guess we're just gonna have to see that's that's no kind of thing you can say that doesn't help with your fundraising and that's I think that's the fundamental problem, and we absolutely saw it and are still seeing it come to play in you know with with this pandemic and understandably so, but it it just makes it a lot harder to to kind of come together, i think.
0: Yeah and I I think the the biggest question and I asked it towards the end of that list of questions I think the biggest question moving forward is no matter what we find um and and you know that I think that anybody who's truly you know interested in 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 science and the scientific process will will Ultimately, kind of like uh, bypass politics and say, "Look, we we just want answers." And I think there are very few of those people out there. I myself, you know, I I find that sometimes I I tend to, you know, I'm I'm easily swayed in one direction or the other because of my politics. And I try to remove the, as as much of that bias as I possibly can. Again, you can't remove it all, but I try to remove it. And I try to say, well, ultimately, whatever comes of this, even if we find that you know my concerns that what I fear happen is that this did originate there if if we find that that didn't happen it's of no consequence ultimately to me but if if we if we you know we have to take what we find and we have to move forward with it and if we do find what i what i think happened that it did originate there and that there is some level of culpability of the chinese government whether it's a cover-up or something more sinister what does that mean Um, in terms of US and Chinese relations. I mean, obviously, it will make things worse. But I'm really interested to see in the future, if something does come of this, and if there is a stronger stance taken um, against China, I would hope so. And and we're going to be, you know, talking about a, um, you know, a bill, uh, the the innovation and competition act of uh, 2021, which takes a strong stance against China, maybe it was, you know, partially brought on by sentiment like this. But Um, And I think it probably was, but, you know, I, I, you know, look, moving forward, I guess that's, that's a big concern of mine in the future, um, you know, is what is our relationship with China going to look like if we, you know, if we find that, that there's culpability to some extent by the Chinese government, are we going to take a stance? You know, what is this? I hope it doesn't mean war, you know, that would be the worst case scenario, but what does this mean? We have to, if, if we do find this, you know, hypothetically, then we have to take a stronger stance on China. We have to be willing to go there. And I just, you know, I'm just, I'm worried about the future, which China's always been my, for the last few years, at least has been my big concern. I think a lot of people were, you know, concerned about Russia, Iran. I've always had my sights set on China. Um, and, you know, I think that ultimately, you know, cracking down on, uh, you know, kind of letting them run run all over our, you know, our innovation, obviously, and, and then also all over the medical community and letting them control the narrative on something like this is is a dangerous precedent to set. We can't let them get away with this if those are the findings.
1: Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I also think there's the distinction to be made between, well, was this a lab accident? Or right. was this, you know, was it something more sinister? Were they working on somehow weaponizing this? And that gets into that uh, gain-of-function research I mentioned yeah. earlier on. Now there are some legitimate reasons to do gain-of-function research sure. to understand well what variants are possible and how can we prepare for them. But you could also imagine some, you know, bioweapon type of not not good reasons to do that sort of thing. But and a lot of these matters, I fall back on something that's, that's often called a Hamlin's razor. And it's a rule of thumb that basically is never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity or incompetence. Because accidents happen, basically. Now, yeah, yeah. that's not to say that there is plenty of malice in the Chinese government toward the United States. Absolutely. But, you know, we're never going to know. And in the absence of other evidence, I tend to I'm trying to think, well, you know, again, you talk about, well, what would the consequences to U.S.-China relations be? Well, certainly if China, if this happened because of incompetence, China lost an awful lot from this as well. And they have every reason in the world to tighten up their their lab procedures to make, to make something like this less likely in the future. I, I, I would expect you to agree with that, right?
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know. I, I guess the example I'm thinking of is like what happened after Chernobyl. Again, I go back to Chernobyl, yeah, no, sure. which is a, yeah. a time in history I'm super interested in. But I think about how the Soviet Union tried to cover it up and how it, it, it's, the, it's a perfect example of when a, when a government doesn't do what you just laid out. You know, when they don't take measures to tighten things up, when they just try to cover things up. And I don't, we just don't know what's going on. I see what you're saying. You know what? Yeah. Actually
1: that, no, that's a, that's a fantastic point because in those sort of super secretive authoritarian governments, people even at the lowest levels, and you know, all this from, I I know you're a huge, like Chernobyl junkie, if you will, but, but weird, but no, but in these systems, even the lowest level people, their first instinct is, well, don't tell the superiors because I could get shot literally for this. So let's just cover it up at the lowest right. levels, which makes it a lot worse than in a system where maybe it doesn't seem like you're actually going to be killed for you know letting your superiors know about a problem. So no, I think that actually is a, is a really good point. It's just the very nature of China's government can make some of these things worse than they might be in a more open system which is not to say that you know even in a more open system after the the damage had been done the government would say oh yeah we screwed we screwed the pooch on that one i mean that's not going to be too likely so yeah uh, any any other thoughts on on this before we move on to well our another our, our next china story
0: yeah um no i I just i you know again like i'm I'm just I'm very concerned about you know where we move on from here no matter what our findings are. I think ultimately what it's going to come down to is a lot of us have to reconcile that you know the truth is is what we're ultimately going for this isn't about to to me it's it's I've tried really hard to say this isn't about Democrats and Republicans this is about i feel like you know covid nineteen is something that affected everybody. You know, across the country, it affected businesses. It affected, you know, the poor, the weak. It affected, you know, the rich and the powerful. And you know, and obviously in very different ways. But you know, ultimately, it, it affected the entire country. It affected the entire world. Some countries worse. You know, some countries really had it bad. Um, and I think ultimately, what it's going to come down to is trying to get as much. I don't think we're ever going to get to the truth, like you said. But I think it's going to come down to finding out as much truth as we possibly can, and then you know, kind of. Come coming together and deciding how are we going to react? I hope it's not something sinister. Um, I hope it was something as simple as an accident, but then, you know, will we do anything to hold them accountable to that? I don't know. Again, the Chernobyl pops, example pops into my head, but, you know, I just have so many questions about this moving forward. I guess, I guess ultimately it's funny because with the credibility lent to this story, um, you know, I had questions before. I feel like I have even more questions now, which is a position I, again, like I hate, we have an allergy to uncertainty that was perfectly put. Um, you know, we just, we don't like when we don't know things. I don't like not knowing things. You probably don't no, either, but sometimes we have to just accept it. Yep,
1: absolutely. <laughs>
0: Well, let's just take one
1: more final break, and then we'll be back to talk about that uh, uh, U.S. Innovation and Competitiveness Act that you mentioned earlier, that in just one minute. Okay, Kristen, so yeah, you mentioned the uh, Innovation and Competitiveness Act because it's definitely directed at China. So why why don't you tell us a little bit about where we are with that right now?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about this, um, especially on the heels of the last topic, because this is I feel like we get to talk about something that has some bipartisan support. Yeah, (laughs) I'm really happy about because you and I always lament, Uh (laughs) you know, that there's just not enough. There aren't enough stories like this, you know, that that we get a chance to talk about. you know, so so yeah. So this is the the like you said, the Innovation and Competition Act of 2021, um, and it's basically it's aimed at boosting our ability here in the U.S. to compete with Chinese innovation, specifically innovation in the tech arena. Um, you know, which I mean, they're they're outpacing us quite a bit, and so it's you know we're we're hoping that that will be. A Thwarted, and that we can kind of regain a foothold there. Um, this past Thursday, the Senate voted 68-30 uh, to end debate on this 250 billion dollar leg- uh, piece of legislation uh, in a rarely bipartisan move. So that that's a good sign. Um, you know, when the when the debate is ended with such a wide margin, and you know things look good for this. Um, so there are lots, many, many elements of this bill that are seen as positive by Republicans and Democrats. Um, You know, lots of different things pointed out uh, on both sides, Uh, but there are there is some criticism on the right that Congress needs to be sure to focus the legislation on China and that tackling competition strategically, uh, not by special interests and potentially ineffective government oversight and intervention. So there are some concerns by people on the right, um, although, again, this remains particularly bipartisan, which is great. Um, and then just looking more closely at the bill just to familiarize everybody with the bill, um, here are some of the highlights. There's authorization of over $200 billion in spending, and that would be an R&D research and development for the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy. And of course, there's a list of 10 key technology focus areas, which is a directive for the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy. And then... Um, the caveat here that a lot of Republicans are raising is that there's over a hundred billion dollars of spending for special interests and enforcing government oversight of the economy where the private sector has already proven to be effective, mostly in the areas of defense and defense research. So, yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of like a, you know, something good to come out of all this and looking at some of the names of people who were, especially on the left, who were supporting this, you know, legislation, it's hopeful. Even the Heritage Foundation came out in support of this legislation, which, I mean, if you get the Heritage (laughs) Foundation's seal of approval, then you probably have the the seal of approval of most people on the right. So I I was surprised to see that because so rarely do we get to talk about pieces of legislation like this yeah you
1: know and and, and yet there were you know i mean 30 votes to not end debate you know we had had senator senator this time actually senator kennedy from louisiana uh said (laughs) that schumer's running around like a five-year-old in a batman costume he's so excited (laughs) (laughs) a great quote but and so i gotta wonder that even on something like this if there was just a hardcore on the right, and possibly you know things were reversed on the left. That just if if Schumer's for it, I'm against it, no matter what. That we can't give, we can't have anything go through. I I don't know. I mean, what do you what do you make of that? I mean, it's great. I don't want to see I don't want to see him ungrateful for this bipartisanship. But do you think that's just kind of the the, the nature of things as they are now, or or what?
0: Of course, yeah. yeah. I I think that you have factions on the right and the left who say, well, if somebody like you know Nancy Pelosi in Congress or Senator. Chuck Schumer and, and you know, in the Senate, if, if they're for it, then I'm against it. Um, you know, but I, I think that sentiment is echoed. I, I see a lot of hatred for Ted Cruz, for Senator Cruz. And I you know I know a lot of Democrats who will say, well, if Ted Cruz is for it, I'm against uh-huh. it. So I think that, again, like like you said, I think that's just kind of the nature of of how things go. Um, I, I was surprised, thirty or 68 to 30, that's a pr- yeah. pretty wide margin to yeah. end debate. And anytime debate is ended, those of us who follow what happens in the Senate know, that like that's that's a good sign. You know, that's a good sign. It means they're done talking about it. There's not much more to talk. Obviously there are some kinks that need to be ironed out. I think there are some like legitimate concerns about government oversight and special interests, but you know, again, you're talking about, you know, a, a small portion of the total, you know, financial structure of the bill and I I think yeah, no, I, I honestly I think this is going to pass, but yeah, I, th-
1: I think it's a pretty clear need. I mean, as was pointed out in, in the legislation, in in 1990, the U.S. had 37 percent of global semiconductor manufacturing. Today, yeah. it's 12 percent, and we all know about the story about how you know production lines for genome and other places had to be shut down because of chip shortages. And so, this is a a very real issue that I think you know uh, senators on both sides can appreciate. And and I think I, I agree with that. This is the phrase that doesn't come out of my mouth a whole lot. I agree with the Heritage Foundation here that this is, <laughs> you know, a good thing that we need. Though I would say that this is kind of the tip of the iceberg, because if you look at longer term trends, uh, we, we see China investing, you know, like $150 billion or so in, in chip manufacturing. We see China producing tens of millions of STEM graduates every single year. Now, in general, our STEM graduates still tend to be of higher quality, but they're, they're putting an awful lot into this. And also when we look at R&D spending, more and more of U.S. R&D spending has been driven by the private sector, which is great. In some ways, I would agree, but the problem is that that oftentimes means less of that kind of basic research that moves things forward because it's you know it's not profitable in a in a quarter or in a year, but ten years down the line you know i I always think about i'm kind of fascinated by the space program, but right all those things that came out of the space program that weren't clearly financially viable products that never would have been developed you know but were because of that. Or, you know, World War II, a lot of stuff was developed out of technology was developed for that. So I think there's an important role for that. But more than anything else, when I think about US China competitiveness, I think about education. And the connection here for me is that states have significantly disinvested in higher education since the financial crisis back in 2008. Um, Something like 6.6 billion less in 2018 than a decade before, uh, according to the, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And I would love to see some sort of legislation that maybe would give states significant, say, block grants for their higher education systems with funding maybe contingent on things like enrollment, retention, graduation benchmarks, as well as affordability. And I think conservatives might go along with that in a sense because it's it's giving states the money, you know, again, conservatives tend to be more in favor of block grants saying, well, let the states figure out how to use this money. and And also, I would say the same sort of idea in regards to K through twelve education, which as many people know, is funded in many states, most states through that insane property tax thing, which ensures that the kids who are in the who are in the most need get the worst funded, worst resourced education. And even if you don't care about that, just think about the human capital that's being wasted, the potential great scientists who never get the straight the training, who can never go to college because they don't have the the, the high school preparation. And I just think we are just leaving a lot of great, potentially wonderfully talented people behind because our funding systems for education are so screwed up. And I would, I would love to see if we want to compete with China, and we're still ahead of them, but if we want to keep our edge, especially given the fact that they are more than three times larger than us in terms of population, we need to start doing things that are more forward thinking, I think.
0: Yeah. So I love the idea. Uh, I'm a Republican, obviously, but I love the idea of block grants to states because I'm all about states allocating the money without earmarks um, to, you know, according to how they best see fit. And, and obviously, you know, with that comes a lot of risk and responsibility. Um you know but but like for example i i live in florida and um you know it's 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 a large state with a with a growing population and in florida um because we don't have the same tax structure as other states we rely heavily on like public private partnerships for uh k to 12 schools um i know because i in my 20s right after college i actually taught for a period of time at one of the schools that ha- was a public private partnership essentially it was a charter school um and you know I, well i think that you know, there, there are a lot of perks to a system like that. Um, You know, ultimately what it's revealing is like deficiencies in the public education system. And the fact that there isn't as much of an, you know, we in, I feel like in the early two thousands, it was all about protecting the arts and, you know, arts education and, and allocating money that way. And I feel like it's become more and more apparent over the last decade that where we need to be allocating money is towards STEM. And, uh, you know, towards teaching uh, kids like critical thinking and critical research skills and obviously, you know, supporting higher education uh, within state, keeping kids in state, you know, going to really fabulous programs in their states. Obviously, it it benefits not only the state because, you know, a lot of those. Uh, students will graduate, you know, in STEM fields and, you know, they may continue their, their postgraduate education in state. Um, but, you know, ultimately they they will, uh, you know, stick around um, and, you know, maybe they they will benefit the states in, in some way, the individual states in some way. I know in, in Florida, there's been a big push to for students to stay in Florida. There's been a lot of investment in like Florida, higher education institutions, University of Florida, University of South Florida, Florida State, um, and in STEM research research at those universities. So again, like, I don't, you know, I don't think we're, we're, (laughs) we're near where, uh, you know, China is to your point about like, you know, graduating students and they're, they're graduating students at record numbers. There's a a huge quantity of, of, you know, students graduating from, uh, you know, in STEM fields from China. And you mentioned that, you know, students in the United States tend to graduate and be like of a higher quality. They tend to, you know, understand the process better. They tend to have more, you know, better research skills and things like that. But at the same time, you know, we have to boost that, that quantity too. It's, it's, I mean, on a personal level, it's one of the reasons why I would never push my kids into anything but I've really encouraged STEM interest because I think it's so important you know as we move further into the 21st century this really is the direction that we're moving in and it's in a way um, you know this is a very this is like a shockingly patriotic piece of legislation it's something that's again like it's a positive to come out of this it's very much um, yeah I can see why it's garnered so much bipartisan support I think anybody on uh, you know speaking as somebody on the right uh, you know anybody on the right would look at this and say yeah there are some concerns that we have about this but you know ultimately this this is going to be a good thing in terms of education and in terms of, you know, helping our government kind of, I guess, reestablish prowess in technical arenas. I, you know, I'm I I'm always like I said, I'm always concerned about China and, um, you know, I think moving forward, like for my kids' generation, this that's going to be their main concern. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and where they're going to go. So. Yeah. OK,
1: well, yeah, it's nice to actually have at least a note of partial bipartisanship on this show and close with that. But before we we do close, uh, you know, I. Dying to hear what you've been reading or listening to or watching or something like that. Yeah. So did you have a do you have a recommendation for us this week? Oh,
0: do I have a recommendation? (laughs) I have a recommendation. Okay, so I a couple of months ago um I read about this incredible series. I'm really into to crime and suspense and you know just escapism in that way. Some people are, some people aren't. But if you're into that sort of thing, um I read about this series that that was produced, it was in two countries in conjunction with each other, uh, Danish television and and Swedish television, produced a series called The Bridge in 2011. And it continued until 2018. There are actually four seasons of it. And it was funny because I saw there was like a promotion on Amazon Prime uh, where the the first season was free. And I thought, oh, I better watch this because I'd been hearing about it for so long, but I didn't want to pay for it. Um, So I watched it and I was like, swept away i'm a big office fan always have been and i would i would dare to say that this show may have become my favorite show wow like yeah it was it was so good and so well acted and um you know, just just really like the, the characters were so, you know, they were so deep and the the storylines were so tight. And it was just like the perfect, this, the first season was perfect. It really was perfect, it you know, tied up with a bow at the end. You know, it was, there were funny moments. It was just perfect. And I thought to myself, well, the second season couldn't be any better, but I went on to watch the second, third and fourth um, free. I found them actually free um, through a couple of different streaming sources and they were just as good as the first. And I just, I, it was one, it was the first show in a long time where I finished season four and I thought, I don't want this to end. Wow. <laughs> I wish they'd kept going. So yeah, I can't recommend the bridge. The Swedish Danish version. I know America, I think FX produced a version a few years later. Yeah. And,
1: okay. I, yeah. I'd heard of that one. So that's yeah. originally I thought. That's what you were talking about, but no, okay. So this is the original one. This gotcha.
0: is the original and there are subtitles. So if that bothers you, then, you know, there are subtitles, but I, almost everything I watch has subtitles because I like a lot of foreign television and um, it you know it it doesn't detract from the show if you don't speak Swedish or Danish it doesn't you know detract from the show I've heard the American version is excellent too I think maybe I'll binge that next but yeah that's been like my big obsession over the last few months I've been so busy but in my free moments I've been watching that
1: cool (laughs) what about you well I have two things one is an actual uh, like a physical item uh, and the second one is a kind of big heavy dense book the physical item is uh, actually a of all things a watch strap if you have a, a especially if you have a smart a smart watch as a lot of people do oh. or uh, oftentimes you know those those like plasticky kind of straps are just annoying and and not very comfortable and i actually am into like real Mechanical watches and some of those straps are not great. And so I got into watches over the pandemic. It's just God, don't get into watches. Bad idea. Um, <laughs> you'll spend way more money than you should. But anyway, so I came across this super, supposedly super comfortable watch strap by a guy named Nick Mankey. This guy in California makes him on his own, one man operation, takes eight to 10 weeks to get one. But so many places, so many people raved about, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to order, I'm going to order a couple of them. And they came and just, my God, ruined me for anything else around my wrist. So incredibly comfortable. The guy is super nice. I had a, I had a question. He got right back to me. you know, there's something I got to say, There's something, especially in today's Amazon focused world of being able to communicate directly with an individual who is making a thing for you specifically. That is just, I don't know, to me, that feels kind of special because you have to give this, you have to give them your, your wrist measurement and all that. And it's so, it's like an actual relationship with somebody for this thing. And I don't know, I just, it's really cool. They're, they're, completely affordable. They're, they're not expensive at all and totally worth the eight to 10 week, uh, uh, wait. And I will put the link up there because I'm just happy to support individual makers, uh, you know, these days for sure. That's so awesome.
0: Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I tried to do that during the, during the lockdown too. I tried to invest more in small businesses. Yeah, so, I, exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So my, my second thing is the kind of a really big thing. It's a book called a secular age by a guy named Charles Taylor. Um, And this came out, I don't know, a while ago, but the book is all about how we went from a point in the West where, you know, around 500 years ago, it was essentially unthinkable to not believe in God, literally unthinkable for for 99 point something percent of people to today, where even if you are a believer, you understand that there are other Choices, if you will, so even believers can think about the idea of not believing. And, and Taylor is this just one of these people who is so incredibly intelligent. He's an emeritus professor of philosophy at McGill University in Canada, and. He rejects what he calls the subtraction story narrative, and this is about Sam Harris and some of the other kind of uh, uh, what four horsemen of the atheism, whatever they call themselves. Yeah, the, the, but the, this idea that basically, well. We don't believe in God because science, essentially, you know. And and he says, you know, that's a factor. But if that's how you look at it, you're being incredibly reductive. And I I came in with a certain amount of sympathy for that viewpoint. But this book was challenging, was difficult, was frustrating at times. And I didn't find all of his arguments completely convincing. But the book – The book was really a a good challenge for me, even though Taylor is very much in need of an editor, but I I would absolutely recommend this if you're looking for kind of an intellectual challenge, especially if you are fairly convinced in your atheism, but you're open-minded and want to kind of push yourself a little bit. You know, if if you're already a committed believer, I don't know that this book is going to do anything for you, but I'm always looking for things to challenge my worldview. And he absolutely challenged my worldview in a couple of interesting ways. And so I would definitely recommend that. Awesome. All right. And, you know, one more thing, Kristen, before we go, I've got an update on our drive for 5% listener support on Patreon. Last week, I mentioned that we were 23 new supporters away from that goal. And uh, the, and with that goal, the three bonus shows that I promised we would do over uh, over the course of the summer with topics chosen by our Patreon supporters, if we actually – get there by the end of June. Well, in the last week, four more listeners have become supporters. Now one supporter dropped his support, but we're still up three. And so we only need 20 new supporters in the next month to hit that goal. So if you want to help us do that, go to patreon.com slash politics guys, and you'll get that bonus episode and all that. And again, remember, if if you want the bonus episode, you can't afford to support the show. Mike at politicsguys.com, send me an email. I will get you all set up. And really, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, left ratings, and reviews, anything like that, shared the show on social media, that really makes a difference. If you could do that, we would truly, truly appreciate that. But that is it for us today, but as soon as we are done here, Kristen and I are going to be recording our That Full Length bonus midweek show. We're going to be talking about infrastructure talks, uh, President Biden's first budget, and Kristen, something I know that's of particular interest to you, Florida's new deplatforming platforming law. I know you have a lot of... So excited to talk about that. (laughs) Me too. Absolutely. So all that will be there on Wednesday morning if you are a supporter, and if you're not, again, patreon.com slash guys. Thanks to everyone for listening, but thanks especially to our most excellent executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, Nathan Sosnowski, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show for you next week. We hope you'll join us.